welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the worlds of arts, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hashem Montasser. Before we get started, if you haven't already done this, please follow us in your podcast app of choice, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Remy and others, so that you get alerted about new episodes. We publish a new episode every other week, usually on Thursday. You can also listen to our extensive catalog of episodes on our website, thelighthouse.ae slash podcast. I'm joined today by writer, curator, and designer, Brendan McGedrick. Brendan is the creative director of the Museum of the Future, built by the Dubai Future Foundation with a one-of-a-kind building located at the heart of Dubai. I was interested to know how the museum defines the future, i.e., what lens it's using in its interpretation of the future, and also learn more about a building that has become instantly iconic, featuring exhibitions that have been essentially sold out since its opening late last year. We also spoke about Brendan's own background in design and his thoughts about the world of technology and what impact it has on us as humans. This turned out to be a riveting philosophical discussion. Brendan, welcome. Very happy to have you with us on the podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here. We're going to meander a little bit today, so bear with us. But I want to start with your current day job. Zim of the Future opened some time back. Huge success. Sold out most of the time. In fact, just as we were sitting down a few minutes ago, you were called to see a VIP guest, which I'm sure happens quite often. From your perspective, uh, walk us first through... What was your expectation of what a museum of the future would be? And what was the reality of what actually happened when you guys opened? I, I should just say, so I'm the creative director of the museum. I'm basically responsible for the exhibition content, the visitor experience, and sort of articulating and providing a way for people to access the kind of future that the museum and um, the DFF, Dubai Future Foundation, wanted to present to the world. Um, the reason why I took the position, though, is that prior to me getting involved, they had already sort of figured out that what they wanted to do is not create a museum kind of about the future, but they wanted to create a museum where you could sort of experience possible futures. And they had developed a kind of language for this where you went and you visited possibilities, basically. And this had been developed over years at the World Government Summit. Um, so they had made a series of like pop-up temporary exhibitions, and they were using this sort of relatively niche field of design called experiential futures where you kind of build up a scenario and then you introduce people into it so that they can understand what could happen with the right policies or the right kind of shifts or investment, what that could manifest to. I found that really fascinating as an approach. Um, and then when I got involved, I suppose the main thing I learned is, um, uh, maybe two things I learned. The process of making it, what I learned is there's a tremendous number of um, perspectives that you have to somehow coalesce in order to do that because a traditional exhibition you can just divide a space and just assign different topics or different items to different spaces and then you're kind of as long as it makes some sort of sense like visually and and theoretically people understand it if you're trying to make an environment though it should all feel connected it should all feel unified and so that's true visually and materially but also conceptually and philosophically so getting to a point where we felt like each individual floor in the museum in general had a kind of holistic, unified philosophy and a holistic, unified approach to experience. Um, took a long time and, and was was a, a complicated process. Um, and so then 
that was all up until the opening. Once it opened, then you kind of realized that there's a stakeholder that you weren't maybe thinking about enough or in the right way, and that's the public, because the public comes in and they have a totally different set of interests, totally different set of assumptions about what they want as an experience, what they expect the future to be. Can I interrupt you just for a second before we go to the public? So when I think today, if I was sitting there with the blueprints and I think about the future, the topics that come to mind that most of us hear about, whether you know reading or on Twitter or talking to our friends, are virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, and some shape or form of metaverse that's now become talked about, especially after Facebook renamed itself, et cetera, et cetera. Were those the kind of things you were seeing when you showed up and they were like, this is how, you know, I don't know, 2035 will look like or 2040 will look like? Well, yes and no. Okay. Uh, on the one hand, I think there's a desire to provide an experience through which the medium itself feels futuristic. So VR okay. feels like a futuristic medium. AR feels like a futuristic medium. Correct. The problem is that the actual lived experience of using VR and AR is actually not, it doesn't feel futuristic. It actually feels frustrating and Correct. you feel very much confined to a technology that has not arrived it's yet. It's like Google Glass or something like that. Yeah. And so that's actually more frustrating to people than to deliver them something which is actually relying on media that are older, like more stagecraft and things like that. And doesn't make a good user experience and probably doesn't hold the public's imagination. No. And yeah. it disappoints them about the future. Right. And like <laughs> the, the, the future is not cool. The thing that you didn't mention, but which also people associate is robotics. And, and robotics. everyone goes, oh, robotics is amazing. And then you watch these Boston Dynamics videos or you watch, you know, yeah, like Elon any Musk's Hollywood thing, movie. And you're like, the robot doesn't look that dynamic. No, and it's not. Yeah, and 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 the thing is that it's it's kind of unfortunate because robotics is incredibly hard, yeah. and it's unfortunate that Hollywood sets an expectation that when you're you're inevitably disappointed. <laughs> there's no there's no alternative to, than disappointment when you see a robot, unless it's a little like Roomba, innocent thing that is never trying to be impressive. So why didn't they go for a Hollywood version and saying like, look, this may not be the future, but this is going to be fun for you and your kids when you come and visit the museum? Yeah, because I think that the the fundamental. Um, inspiration behind the museum, because it's important to say that it's an initiative of the government. It's, it's coming from a public interest. Um, and as a, you know, coming from a public interest, I think that what it wanted to do and what, what it seeks to do is make people feel that the future matters and that they matter within the future. So something which is just like, hey, it's going to be a cool futuristic thing and you can have fun, but it's alienating to certain people because they don't, can't imagine actually functioning in that future wouldn't really serve Got that it. purpose. So it was necessary to try to create storylines and environments and, and introduce topics in a way that felt empowering to people and felt relevant to people. And a lot of those things, a lot of those technologies speak very uh, clearly and, and persuasively to a certain limited population that goes like, yes, what I want is, you know, yes. XR and uh, extended reality. And I want to experience the best version of that. And that's what the museum should be. But there's so many other people who, A, don't even know what XR is and don't care. But also, you know, they want to think about the future through themselves and through their own concerns. And you can't throw them uh, some kind of emerging, not quite convincing interface for them to then think about themselves. All they're going to be thinking about is what they don't understand and what, what feels foreign to them. So this is something that we had to avoid and we, we made a lot of decisions to, to avoid. So then you opened, and you were saying earlier, and then 
the public came and it was huge success from an attendance perspective, from a PR perspective, certainly from just an awareness perspective. Very impressive. The building itself also caught a lot of attention, you know, kind of the architecture of the building, the facade, all of that. So walk us a bit through the, you know, user's experience or the, attendant, the attendees' experience when they, when they showed up. Yeah, so the building can't be acknowledged enough, um, simply in terms of setting a very high expectation for what this thing could be. Uh, the building, it's a totally original form. Um, I understand talking about this on a podcast is not the best medium, but for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's a sort of round shape. It has a, yeah. a void in the middle. It's covered with calligraphy, which serves as the windows of the building. So it's, it's a really exceptional uh, work of architecture. If you, if you think about visitor or guest experience, or or any any actually form of communication, there's this notion of kind of priming people, of putting people in a certain mode of thinking before, before they, they even start. come in. Yeah, absolutely. And it's done that very successfully. Yeah. So so people are already fascinated. They're already um, destabilized a bit before they even enter it. And then the lobby, once you get inside, it just doubles down on that effect. That's really essential to to the museum itself, independent of what the content even is. It it makes a statement for originality for a kind of um a new a new look of what a building can be, which is, you know, easier said than done, really, because 100%. we've kind of anyway, so there's that aspect of it. Um once you enter, uh in terms of exhibition experience, uh one thing I will say which is really um shaped by being in Dubai and let's say being in the region in general, there's a lot of multi-sensory things which I think museums in other parts of the world don't take as seriously. So one of the big uh, fun but long and and uh, controversial processes was coming up with the scent of the museum, for example, which I don't think many museums have, have a scent, but in Dubai it's like to not have one would be <laughs> like a, a, a weird choice. Um, so these things like that where we really wanted to make sure that, and this, to go back to your point about like VR and AR, we wanted to make sure that you were having a multi-sensory experience that really rewarded your physical present. And so a lot of decisions were made with that in mind. You know, Including taste, by the way, taste, I'm sorry to interrupt you because the coffee was like, I got a ro Robocop coffee yeah. experience as well, right? Slightly right. friendlier than Robocop, I believe it, yeah. Yeah, exactly, a um, friendly. So anyways, that's just to say that we knew when we were developing this, and this was before COVID and everything else, that we were kind of in a space where we were also not just competing with museums, I would say competing less with museums than with Netflix and video games and things like this, which are, you know, compelling and, and in a way define culture more than uh, museums in a lot of ways. So everyone sort of starts in the same way. You take a, a, a in, the, in the reality of the museum, elevator ride uh, up to the fifth floor of the museum, and in the kind of fantasy conceptual uh, experience, you're taking a, a spacecraft up to a space station. And so then you depart the year 2022 and you enter the year 2071 and you depart planet Earth and you enter a space station, which is in lower Earth orbit. The idea was, was that, you know, as I mentioned before, we kind of put you into a future and we don't uh, explain everything. We don't... Um, we don't tell you what matters and why. We kind of Let allow you to experience it as you want. Yeah, and draw your own conclusions because that, on the one hand, we want to open that kind of you know curiosity gap that people can fill with their own interests rather than us telling you. Um, but also to say that the the future is uncertain. A, it's a work in progress, yeah. and 
we're not here to tell you like we're not forecasters telling you this is will be the future and therefore like yeah go invest in this company because we know that's never what the museum was supposed to be about it's supposed to be about expanding what people think is possible for the future and what they think is possible for themselves or their children's lives or grandchildren's lives so we have a lot of intentional uh vagueness in it which is it which is challenging and which is a risk um but we did that on purpose because we it, the reality of like this room we're sitting in now no, nothing is annotated no one's explaining anything in this room it just exists so we wanted you to exist in the future without a whole bunch of explanation and then for you to become a resident and a participant in that future and what was the feedback from your visitors generally very very positive um because it's a new experience there isn't really anything like it did they wind up making their own conclusions as you said or did they feel case more by case okay. i'm not going to sit here and say everybody yeah, yeah, no sure. some some people find it frustrating and and we um we have a floor which is a much more standard exhibition which is just near future technology with exhibition labels and it's just typical museum making and of course people like this because it's understandable and familiar and it's very concrete you you look at the object and you read what it is and you go okay i get it well, this is what this might be or yeah and so you know that's fine and 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 i and i will just say um i absolutely uh i've deep deep gratitude to dubai future foundation and dubai government in general for being willing to take a risk like that because uh it's easy to make a museum like i just described where you just put futuristic stuff in there you put a label in there this is a super this is a quantum computer you know this is a robot dog this is a flying taxi and then you know that feels like a futuristic thing but in terms of like you know the the spectrum of museum making and the spectrum of exhibition making that's not a futuristic approach at all that's a that's a early 20th century approach correct what's amazing about what we've managed to do is that it, the kind of medium and the message are both trying to do something new but because of that of course you're going to find people frustrated we also you know didn't get everything right and we're in the process of evolving it and all of that but that's the nature of trying to do something new um and so generally the feedback is good we just we, we understood that there was a certain percentage of misunderstanding that we were going to allow for and know that that would affect you know people's responses but that's also fine in a typical more traditional museum setting you have like sort of a permanent collection and you have some temporary you know things that are moving around how much of what you have is is sort of fixed and will remain so versus you know the curation the exhibitions the theme i mean the theme might change over time yeah i'd say essentially nothing is fixed okay. um uh, so we could essentially come in a year from now and have a completely different experience maybe it's still i mean i'm exaggerating a yeah, little bit but, but i mean in theory right it's not, it's not what you're going to do yeah a different experience for sure um there is no permanent collection that was one of the challenges you know that you have a whole new museum with like 10,000 square meters of exhibition space and you have to fill it with entirely original content that you know none of which is on And how loan. long does the original content typically sit it, it it kind of depends i'd say that we will probably start working on what would be the next um Trish. a replacement for one of the floors in beginning of next year okay um but then that takes time but but even that though it's it's challenging because which what we would change needs a bit more time you know to really understand what's working what isn't let's talk about some of these things you strike me just from doing some research for this episode in some of your writing some of your interviews some of my conversations with you offline to have a very nuanced view when it comes to that so in terms of these big tech ideas that are coming in 
the cause and effect, the consequences. Obviously, we're all excited about the future to some extent, some more than others. <laughs> depends on the person. But but I think you also recognize that it comes at a price. And you've addressed this in some of your writing and some of your interviews where you talked about kind of the mental health issues, potential addiction issues that come with technology. And it's funny because we talk about sustainability when we go into long-term, and then we look at some of these innovations and we say, like, how sustainable is this? That we've started off now being all, almost have a phone fully attached to us, which is in fact a computer. And now we're having accessories that are being added to this computer in terms of our ears, our eyes, et cetera, et cetera. What's your personal view on this and that intersection? It's useful for people to know a little bit about like the history of how um, personalization of uh, particularly computers and technology um, has gone. I won't say that history now, but I'll just say that if you do kind of do some basic research in terms of how computers became um, personal, personal computers and yeah. then laptops and then smartphones, that process of kind of miniaturization and personalization um, has been very consistent and has a very consistent um, and a sort of unified theory of of how people and technology should coexist. And that is that technology should be more and more intimately embedded in our lives. And the ultimate goal is sort of invisibility and, and ubiquity. Whose goal? The people who are making the technology. Yes, exactly. Um, Let's be very clear. Yeah. No, yeah. but that's kind of what I mean. Yeah. The history of the, 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 the work that's been yeah. done. This is Meta's goal, Google's goal. You know, yeah, Apple's goal, and Apple's and, goal and before them, many other people's goals. Sure. It's important, and I would say, yeah, that, I, that's in general a really important distinction to make. Anything, not just technology, but anything that you encounter, is imbued with the assumptions and the priorities of the people who are making, making it. it. And can I just add here a little uh, additional piece that I want you to, to address as well? You're also, you have obviously a, a background background in design, you're a designer, write about design. So having a good user experience and better design burdens that even more. In other words, if you have, look at the first user experience of an Apple phone, iPhone versus today, the better the design got, the less friction there was, the more we used it. So from a designer's perspective, you'd think, oh, terrific. I mean, I'm, I'm so happy how beautiful it looks yet that made it even more indispensable to all of us. So so kind of, sorry, walk us through all, how all of these things come together. Well, yeah, so design, I mean, it's important to say that um, Apple in particular is a really important company because um, for a long time, if, if you talk about Silicon Valley, this was a, an engineer's town. Technologies were created and then they, a kind of like generic box was put around them sure. uh, because it wasn't about that. It was about what the thing could do. Um, and one of like a Apple and Steve Jobs' like major contributions, not in any way original or uh, alone, but in terms of you know the big picture, was to understand that without a feeling of human connection to this box, it's going to remain a niche thing for hobbyists, right. basically, which is what it was. 100%. And, and so design, in terms of, you know, product design and, and, and aesthetics and, and an appreciation of, of materiality and things like that plays a role. But the bigger role that I think it speaks to your question is design as uh, an expression of interest in user experience. And I think that to the extent that that's well done and the extent that your user experience feels natural, feels rewarding, feels fun, 
yeah, that then you develop a, an emotional relationship with the 100%. technology. Even at a basic design level, even e-commerce, right? An Amazon site, the better it got, the less friction. Obviously, they benefit because you buy more. My experience is more pleasant, but it probably means that I go more and more. I mean, it's the same. It's the same chain. Yeah, it is. Um, but even Amazon, Amazon at least is. It's obvious what it is. You know, it's 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 a mall in yes. cyberspace. So you know, to the extent that it's the best one or the biggest one or the easiest one, so that's good. Fair enough. But with personal technology, it's a little bit different because um, it's trying to be a lot of different things at the same time. But what it's also trying to be is simply an extension of yourself. Yes. You know, and that's why, like, um, you know, when the iPhone launched, the tagline was "Your life in your pocket." And this was not a stupid tagline. Yeah, they um, meant it. And it, just to, to return to your question, so you know, design is part of that. De design is necessary for you to actually believe. It. It's easy to say your life in your pocket and then have a big ugly thing that you hate, and you go, "Well, <laughs> I hate my life." Then if this is my life, <laughs> your shitty life in your pocket. Okay, fine. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, whatever. I get it. it just didn't occur to me, but yeah, so, it came from a very California perspective. You're like very positive, like your your great life in your pocket yeah. versus uh, your shitty life is now in your pocket <laughs> with you everywhere. But yeah, to that point, I I previous show that I made uh, at the Design Museum in London was about California design and technology from California. That's right. So I with Justin McGurk. Um, and one of the like totemic like things that we found was an ad for the original PowerBook. So the first Apple laptop and their um, tagline that just was a single word. It said freedom. Mm, and like that tells you everything you need to know about what they think. <laughs> yeah. They thought freedom from the office, freedom from whatever, you know, in that Californian way. Yeah, go go to the beach and work yeah, yeah, yeah. and go to the go skiing and work. Now it seems like unbelievably cynical and almost like, Super you know, crazy. But you can understand what they were thinking at the time, no, you know. 100%. And I, so all I, of that is coming from this just to to the point about like understanding the assumptions, understanding the agenda. A lot of them actually are not you know, anti-social agendas actually. A lot of them are just coming from a set of assumptions where technology can expand what's possible, but technology doesn't exist on its own. It exists within late-stage capitalism and a lot of other things which affect it. We'll continue our conversation about technology and also how Brendan found himself at the intersection of technology and design right after the short break. Welcome back. I'm Hashem Montasser, and you're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with our guest, Brendan McGettrick. You're making case here that as a technologist or as an engineer, their job was to create technology that is superior and that gets better over time and therefore becomes sort of indispensable to us. I mean, that was a stated goal, so they didn't lie, so to speak. I mean, they were like, well, if I'm going to create a supercomputer in your pocket, it better be a really good one. And the better it is, the more you're going to use it. That's my job. You're saying that was stated very publicly. Fine. But weren't these same technologies well aware that there are other issues, set of issues, very serious issues that would come with that, that constant exposure to technology? I mean, maybe I'm being a bit cynical, but obviously that's at the core of today's debate. And I'm not even talking about things like advertising and, and so on. I'm talking about just the sheer use of digital gadgets. Of course, there's awareness of that. I would say it maybe emerged too late. And and one of the things about technology and, and Silicon Valley in particular is it's a 
do it first and think about it yeah, afterwards culture, which, you know, you can be critical of that, but it has its benefits. Um, of course, you'd, you'd want the companies themselves or the, the people in that community to think critically about it. But the reality is that for so long, tech has just had its, its way. Yeah, had its way. No and, regulation, no discussion about any cost uh, cost to, to that to that technology. It's an unjust system simply because a certain you know you know society is obviously or an economy is composed of multiple verticals, and technology is one of them. And for whatever reason, or for lots of reasons, it was decided that technology basically just gets to do whatever it wants for the last few decades. And I think everyone, you know, they had the right rhetoric. It was exciting. It felt good. It felt new. It felt um, expanding and, and liberating. And, and it is to some extent. But, you know, the reality is that all of that should take place within a kind of system of checks and balances where you realize that if you simply allow something that basically never existed before to become the central unifying aspect of a person's life, there are going to be a lot of knock-on effects to that. And I think that, you know, to some extent, it, it would be better if the technology companies factor that into what they do. But the reality is that they exist as businesses, they exist as people who are passionate about what they do. And people who are passionate about what they do want to see it have the maximum influence that it can. And none of that is um, unique to tech. And it's also not something to be shocked by. I mean, it's the no, same. And I'm not trying to make them look like they're the villains. Certainly, I don't think that everybody out there was out there to try to kind of get us, you know. I'm very happy to talk about some of them as villains. It's, I'm not, you know, an apologist in any way. But I would say that, like, you know, a person like Mark Zuckerberg is a very, very limited person. And he's done something very successful and he's applied a certain kind of ruthless drive to expand and, and it has <laughs> paid off. Very well, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we are all limited. So you just can't let people who are basically as limited as everyone else, but has happened to excel in a very specific but hugely influential and lucrative area of life run the show because their limitations will then define life and that is what is happening i mean it's not just run the show and again i'm gonna sound like i i, I actually kind of have also i'm a little bit conflicted about what i think because i was fascinated by a lot of this this technology mm -hmm. and surely no one including some of these guys the mark zuckers of the world of the world knew how big this will all get but today it's not just the technologies and the companies they started it's even uh, having a very, very major impact on public opinion, right? I mean, that's a, a secondary effect. But, I mean, it's not nothing that two of the largest media artists in the world today are owned by the two largest technologists in the world, you know, Bezos and Elon Musk. So, I mean, the whole thing has taken on secondary and third-party effects that, that have made it much, much bigger. So now the, it's even, to some extent, you could argue that they can control the conversation, whether they do or not, is, is is besides the point. But but you know, so so that conversation we're having is is based on a lot of things we read and acknowledge in their media outlets. Yes, and 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 I would say, to the extent that they are part of the conversation, it's also important to know that they they seek cover under rhetoric that's really from a previous time. Freedom of speech. Yeah, because a lot of what came out of, especially the, the the early stage of technology coming from Silicon Valley, it was really 
deeply influenced by counterculture. It was about how do we apply technology to expand the human experience and to, and to kind of augment human life. That's what a lot of the, the early rhetoric is coming from that perspective. And when you hear like Zuckerberg talk about metaverse, he's kind of trying to talk in that way, yeah. but he's not, he doesn't believe that. Yeah. And so I would say the last bit of like cloaking that these companies have is is that they're still hiding behind rhetoric, which is coming from a time and a, and a, in a very different in time. a political philosophy, which was not, you know, let's make as much money as possible and exploit as many people as possible. Luckily, like the metaverse and all these things are so badly done that I think people realize that whatever nonsense, like, you know, rhetoric about how it's going to make life better, it's not convincing. But it has been for a very long time. But how do you tackle some of these issues? Because one thing is issues of privacy and personal data and so on and so forth, which we can see, albeit very, very slowly, that some regulatory structure is going to emerge, right? So over the next 10 years, unfortunately not before that there will be some regulatory structure that says they can do this they can't do that they can collect this they can't collect that but then you have a secondary effect here of just pure addiction yeah. and exposure and you know people were shocked when the chinese government came and said we'll only allow children to use you know um various different technologies and games and so on for x number of hours maybe i mean i don't know if you can implement that across a million plus people but but Maybe it wasn't this unreasonable. It's not very different than, frankly, what I do with my children by giving them screen time. Um, it seems like a very crude measure, but you know, how else do we kind of limit that, or should we try to limit it? Again, I mean, I'm getting a bit out of your maybe comfort zone, but I'm just curious what you think as a as a practitioner and someone in the field. No, I I think that people should limit it. I think that it is. Um, I think everyone, parents in particular, should be aware of how disadvantaged you are versus technology and versus um, mm. everything related to the internet and understand By that- By disadvantaged, you mean that there's a power that's pulling you in yes. and you're gonna be powerless. Yeah, yeah. I don't think people understand that enough, by the way. And, and you know, these things are addictive, not accidentally, they're designed to be No, addictive. no, 100%. And, and so that's what I mean that like, it's not a matter of your You're child weak. being in. Yeah, he's being weak. It, I mean, he's been pulled in there. Billions it's and like billions and billions of dollars, and many, many, many PhDs have been applied to make these things absolutely compelling and to to give you the feeling that if you are not using them, you are fundamentally missing out on something. There's one way that you can have a certain distance for us because we do remember a time when that didn't exist at all. Correct, our generation. But for kids. Does it's, exist. Yeah. So so I do think any any limits, you know, it's in a way it's the same. It's not that different from like, you know, when you ride a motorcycle, you should have a helmet on. Of course, people can go, I don't want to wear a helmet and this is you're oppressing me by telling me, but in the end it's for your good and but for I your family's good. I don't get it. And again, I don't know I don't want to be like into get into conspiracy theories, but I don't feel like the conversation around technology addiction or screen addiction is anywhere near where it should be. I mean, even that word is not applied very often. I mean, we're we're all very careful when we say things like, I use my phone too much, I need to kind of detox for a day or two, but yeah, it's but, not... But sorry, just to interrupt you. See, the way you said it is exactly the right way and exactly the wrong way to think about it. I use my phone too much, so you're blaming yourself. That's what I mean. Of course, I'm not saying we have no agency, we all do, we could all stop using our phones right now. But... Everyone needs to understand that there is 
so much effort and so much quality, frankly, applied to making you feel like you you have a weakness and that you cannot stop using your phone. It's not like that. It's the thing is designed to make you want to use it and it rewards you for using it. Yeah. With, like with so many things, and this is like to your point about regulation, with, as with so many things, there's something which is harmful that for whatever reason we are then, you know, we come to the conclusion that it's our individual failing that we are not able to manage it better. But it's not like that. Like that, that just puts all of the onus on the individual in its in its sort of anti as it does with any addiction. Critical thinking, right? People frankly. feel like constantly they blame themselves. Yeah, they don't understand or blame others, but or blame others. But we do need to understand that you know we as the public, we as people, are subject to forces that are bigger than us, and that to some extent we can individually combat, but to another extent we can't. I mean, you need more more than just that. Do you think the pendulum will swing? I think, in our I, lifetime. I, I think it's closer to swinging than it ever has been. And I think a part of that is the sort of emperor's new clothes phenomenon that's going on right now. I think more and more people see Meta for what it is, see people like Elon Musk for who they are and, and what their priorities are. And I think that this kind of, again, this happy yeah, but they're pro-social Twitter rhetoric. criticizing Twitter. I mean, it's ironic, right? It's, it's not like they have an alternative platform. So, you know, Kara Swisher is, you know, and I love her, bashing Elon Musk on Twitter because that's where she's going to have her largest impact. So, you know, I mean, it's, you know, people are on Facebook and Instagram saying things about Mark and posting villainous pictures. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's not like we've discovered. No, listen. It's this, ironic. This, it's, it's not an easy problem. And it's not an easy problem because it's the context we live in, the atmosphere we live in is defined by technology it's not just like, a, like like it's not even like you could say oh books are bad you know <laughs> it's it's the entire infrastructure of, of communication at this point so you can't just like cut out twitter for example and then it'll be okay no it's it defines everything and it defines the way we communicate so it's not an easy challenge but i think the beginning is just the kind of awareness that we're talking about um is essential a awareness of how things are affecting you sympathy for yourself and sympathy for the people around you, and also a critical view of how these things are made, who makes them, and why, and what their benefits are. Like, how, how does it benefit them that you are then sliced and diced into data and sold to people? Or how does it benefit them that you use your phone eight hours a day? Did you always envisage yourself kind of being interested in that cross-section, let's call it between design and technology, design and innovation. I mean, you have evolved over the years in your previous job. Um, you also looked at Global Grad Show. You are also looking at the future to some extent, very much within more of a design and culture frame. Maybe now that frame is a bit more towards innovation and, and the versus culture. But you've been in that discussion, that conversation for some time now. What brought in your personal life, that interest? Was it always there present from the beginning or was it started from somewhere, let's say, you know, just design in the old fashioned sense and evolved? Well, I think the origin of all my interests is from my background, which is journalism. So I trained as a journalist and I think because of that, I've always been interested in understanding like the story behind the story. And I got out of that field very quickly. Yeah, I was gonna say, I, I just, I just figured this out because I tried to research you, and yeah. that didn't really come out. Effectively buried it. I mean, no, I didn't bury it at all. I just didn't do I'm it enough for it to dramatic. matter to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, but 
No, so yeah, I studied as a journalism and as a journalist, and then I was hired by Rem Kohlhaas when I was twenty-two to um, work with him, and so I was applying journalistic and editorial. Why did you hire you? Uh, not, not nothing. I mean. But I'm saying, if you're a journalist, why would you hire? He he basically hired me because um, they were doing a special issue of Wired magazine. He had basically been been asked to guest edit an issue of Wired, and so I was just added to the editorial team as a young kid who didn't know what he was doing, to be honest. And then that was a success. And then he wanted to make a book, which was like magazine like, and so this was book content that we made, and I edited that. And so then it just evolved from there. So I that's see. how I got deep deeply into design and architecture and, and these kinds of issues. With that background, what I've always found fascinating is how limited stories are and how and how misleading our understandings are. So like to the to our point about technology, one of the things that I've tried to do in various ways is show people how much more technology and how much more design is than the standard things that you hear about. And what do you find particularly attractive about Dubai, I mean, obviously, you've been in and out of Dubai now or in and out of the region for the last 12, no, almost 14 years, I yeah. guess. What do you find so attractive about being here at this moment in time? The defining one, and it really relates to the museum, is that there is a fundamental belief in what's possible and that a bit, something better so is possible. an optimism of sorts. Yeah. There's not, there's not only an optimism, but there's a proof of concept of that optimism, because what Dubai has managed to do in 50 years is staggering. And there's sort of no... Uh, vision Benchmark. of the future that seems improbable, really, um, given what has been achieved. And I think that has an infectious quality, um, which feels very healthy to me. Um, not because everyone should be naively positive about the future, we shouldn't be, but to have no positivity, which you do encounter in a lot of places at the moment, is really is a dead end. You know, what, what I find interesting about this is I came here just a little bit before you, 2005, and when I look at Dubai, the single defining thing is its consistency. It's a bit like this podcast, but on a much bigger level. You know, I may have some better episodes. I may sometimes have great episodes. Maybe some of them are not so good, but I keep at it all the time and I don't stop. And they've really done this so consistently and so remarkably versus a lot of other places, not just in the region, but outside of the region as well, where it's like, stop, go, stop, go. And obviously circumstances around us especially here, but elsewhere, can be very turbulent. And I feel they've just kept at it. And and that consistency has served them very well and has served us living here extremely well. And it goes against the popular notion because it feels like it's a place that sort of always goes for the big projects and the big, you know, coup. But it actually works very consistently on the building blocks, which is essentially the infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and then that's a tribute to the leadership of Dubai. As it, can't be said enough, really, because um, you know the reality is that it's true. the The public image is like you know big announcements, and yeah, the public you know, image is very different than the reality on the yeah, ground. And, and I've said many, many times, Dubai is so much more interesting than it gives itself 100%, credit for. One hundred percent. But anyways, on the ground level, you're right. It's it's investment in the city itself. It's investment in the country itself. And that has a material uh, point of view, an educational point of view. And there's lots of different different ways in which that is happening. And, um, and that consistency means that you, you have a kind of resilience that is necessary in the current, in, not only in the, in the part of the world that we're in, but in the moment in history that we're in. Well, that's exactly right, right? At a time when, I mean, including pandemics and whatnot, 
if there's one thing people crave is some kind of consistency. No, you want to wake up and know what to expect. Yeah, and that's the thing. When 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 the pandemic started and everybody was leaving and people were going like, I was like, I'm staying right here. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, yeah. And also, I, I we talked about it before, but like for the for the museum, it was a really powerful thing because. Uh, particularly in the creative world, everything was getting canceled yeah, yeah, yeah. and everything well, was getting put on the pause. Show, the show is going on. Yeah, We're gonna for continue. me to be able to say all that, because we, we have a lot of partners that tiny little studios that, you know, Doing this was, things this for was you. their big project. That must have given you a lot of credibility with with not just those studios, with, with the creative industry as a whole. Yeah, and and just to say, you know, this this is happening, like, please. And, and, and I think that that matters maybe more than people realize because also the pandemic, there was, there was a... Uh, psychological and emotional component to it besides the health crisis there was the mental health crisis and a lot of that was due to the uncertainty due to you know not knowing are you going to have to lay off your whole studio so all these things um obviously weighed very heavily on everyone and again just to your point about consistency knowing that the project was solid it was going to happen and it did continue the whole time even during the height of like like lockdown and everything um was wonderful because I think for 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 me and for a lot of our collaborators, having that feeling again is a is a kind of hope. You're like, okay, somehow this crazy thing is happening, but somehow this museum is going to happen. Something will happen after that, and you can kind of keep looking at the horizon in a way that isn't fearful. Um, and that is ultimately that's the product of consistency. Do you enjoy that multifaceted aspect of your job? I mean, you do multiple things at the same time. Um, versus sort of going back to a simpler uh, way of doing things. Maybe you're just going to be a writer for the next you know, few years. Maybe you'll just curate. I mean, because I mean, I, I we were talking about it coming in here. I've kind of reconciled myself now to this fact that I do multiple things and I actually enjoy it and try to embed, you know, some creativity within it to keep me sane. But I would find it very difficult to just do one thing only. It's hard to say. Yeah, there's a, I have a, you know, there's a part of me that just imagines like moving to a lighthouse and like, oh, you know, being like, oh, not light. That was like, we exactly. have four. Which that one do you want to move to? No, I'm talking about a literal lighthouse. <laughs> no, I understand, but we can on create a, a room for you. A, on an island, uninhabited island. Don, you um, have to pay for the food, but we'll provide <laughs> okay. everything else. Okay, we're moving to I the like light that now. unintentional uh, product placement there. Um, <laughs> That's no, great. but you know what I mean. Move, move somewhere. Right, you know. understood. Yeah, and just write. Yeah, or yeah, or just think, or just read. You know, but because yeah. um, this was a very, very complicated project, the museum, because like every floor has at least like five, six studios contributing to it. We have our 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 own, you know, internal team. There's the Dubai Future Foundation and it's everything. It's a huge undertaking. So, so a lot of that was like coming up with a, a common language that everyone could speak and, and, and you know, unifying people. And you're a spokesperson for the project to some extent. I mean, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, not just curating and organizing, right? Yeah. So 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 part of me would like to yeah, just do a solo project where I can make all the decisions. And obviously, the scale is much <laughs> smaller and everything is much smaller. But at least you, it's, it's an expression of what you can do. Um, but this also is fascinating, not only because of uh, everything I just said, like working with such a diverse set of collaborators but also because of this idea that we talked about about the public because for the first time i can make something and then see how it's responded to and then try to adjust to that so it's it's actually more of a tech approach of like perpetual beta where you're kind of making upgrades you're iterating iterating, iterating yeah which isn't the typical way usually it's like you make the thing you make it that's it boom you open done. it and then you realize damn <laughs> and then it's stuck there forever you know so that's a really interesting thing which i've never had before and it's it's kind of like um 
tech and it's also kind of like theater like playwrights are sort of like that that they'll sit in the audience and they'll watch it and then they'll rewrite like lines from the script based on how it feels and i think that's a healthy way to to look at uh to making things so part of me kind of is 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 really fascinated by that process which is unique to the museum so i don't know uh, what's next is never a question that I'm like I, I answer in a persuasive way because I sort of well I mean no it's I think it's I don't I, I wasn't needed to be persuaded I was just curious about your interests one final question for you Brandon you've worked with a lot of um, young adults and graduates and students if I were a student today just about to start what and interested in the field let's just call it design and maybe even technology but design broadly speaking. What skill set would you think they absolutely should be focused on? Because, you know, should they be going and studying design? I mean, you didn't, right? You, I mean, you studied journalism. I mean, what would you advise them if there's one thing you would tell them, this is something you should try to hone over the next couple of years? Okay, I'll answer that in a couple of ways. But I would say to, to, to my background in journalism, I, I would encourage writing and actually interviewing. because. Uh, I feel great now. No, no, but no, but but because <laughs> he didn't say I'm a good interviewer, but he said interviewing, which and looked at me. So I mean, I think that feeling. No, like because it, I'll tell you why though. Because interviewing, unless it's done badly, is an expression of what I would say the the most valuable quality is, which is curiosity. I was gonna say, yeah, yes, and hundred percent. That's why you talk to people, yeah. and so and writing. What's valuable about it is that you cannot hide with writing, mm. and that's what makes it hard. And that's what makes it very hard. Like so, so like so. You know, I didn't study design, but I went on to learn design, and I've designed like a number of books and a lot of things. But I still do a lot of things in writing in Google Docs with our collaborators because I don't want them to hide behind images. I always say, okay, what's the idea? Write it, and then respond in writing. And I think for a lot of people that's frustrating. But what's good about it is that again, you can't use smoke and mirrors and go like, yeah, this is a cool looking example of like you know, a, 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 an example screen of like our app, for example, you're like, hey, but who, what does it do and why does it matter and why would I use it? And these things are best expressed in writing because again, you cannot hide. You have to actually express an idea. And if you don't really have an idea, it's going to get exposed. And I think that kind of rigor is important. Um, so I'd say these two things, critical thinking um, and curiosity are, are the two things. And then the other thing is in terms of critical thinking and curiosity to apply that to yourself and be willing to look at yourself and understand what you really care about and what you want to contribute. The thing about design is that you really, if it's done well, it's an emotional experience and it's coming from your heart. And you need to understand that because when you get into a project like the museum, where you have a lot of people who don't have design backgrounds, you need to understand why you're doing it because they have a totally different range of things that they care of course. about and, and that are also valid. Other priorities, yeah. yeah. So let's flip that around for a second. So what do you care about and what do you want to contribute? Just generally speaking, it doesn't even have to be within your current job. I care about providing people with ways to access hope within themselves. And I care about trying to introduce people to the idea that the world and their lives is bigger and more interesting than it seems. And Does that's the what I've platform tried to do. matter? Because I could argue that I could be doing this podcast and saying lots of interesting things, but if people don't pick it up and it's not heard or, you know, kind of shared, then I'm not saying this is the case. I'm just making the, 
you know, then it doesn't really matter because it's nowhere. So the platform matters and I have to have a platform that amplifies this voice. It does, but it does. Does that matter to you? Not, not really. Because okay. what, I what I would say is, is two things about that. One is you never, never know what the impact of what you've done is. Yeah, like, of course, you can go, yeah, I did a TED talk and it blew up and whatever, a million people watched it. Sure, that's a platform and that, that platform guarantees you an audience. So that's yes. fine. But there are also so many things that A, you don't know that anybody ever sees it, but they do. B, they see it and it doesn't actually, they don't actually Talk realize shit. that it affected them for five years. Um, so so I, I think in that way, worrying about the platform worrying about the size of the audience is another form of external validation that I think in the end is a dead end because then it's like, yeah. what's enough? But no, I agree with that. It's very hard to implement, but I agree. Well, so the, the one thing that's been useful for me is so Richard Dawkins had this concept of the, the original concept of the meme is not what the internet version of it is. He created this notion of the meme, which is basically an idea based version of a gene. So he took the idea of genetics and this idea of a kind of building blocks. But he said that basically ideas are kind of like that, that essentially you can share ideas and they have a life of their own and they have an agenda of their own. And an idea will kind of spread itself through culture and through history. It really speaks to this idea that what we're doing in all of our actions, including this podcast, is contributing to a continuum of culture. And all people everywhere at all times contribute to this. And certain things have huge influence, some things have less influence, certain things everyone agrees is a great idea, and then five years later they realize that was a terrible idea. But all you can do as a creative person, all you can do as a person who's working in culture is contribute to that and try to yeah, contribute to that in the purest way with the best intentions possible. And then what happens with it is not under your control. And my issue with the audience is that of course, you can start adjusting what you do to get a bigger audience, but then you end up with like what we have, like for instance, in the States with politics, where it's like, of course, the more extreme thing you say, the yes. bigger audience is, but like, are 100%. you doing something of value with that? And again, that's just to, to, the, to what I was saying about like, probe yourself and understand what, what do you actually care about and then do that. And if you do that, and this I really learned, by the way, from Rem, Colas and Ai Weiwei, if you know that, then you can work in any medium you want and you won't feel like a, a charlatan or an imposter because you know what you're trying to do. Well, thank you. That's, um, I think that's a very honest statement. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Congratulations on your success with the museum. We wish you all the best in the future and we hope to have you back. Yeah, thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you for joining us on the Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hashem Montasim. We're produced by Chirak Desai, and our content director is Farah Sharif. You can connect with us on Instagram at thelighthouse underscore AE and listen to our previous episodes by visiting thelighthouse.ae slash podcast. Or just press the follow button on your podcast player, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, or Anghani. We'll see you again in two weeks.